Thanks so much for listening to the Benefits Breakdown. Stay tuned until the end of our next episode titled The 2023 State of the Market, Fueling the Future of Work to Receive a Code for Sherm Credit. Now, please enjoy the episode. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Benefits Breakdown. I'm Vanessa Longnecker here with... Hey, everybody. Jared Bocutz here with you today. Super excited for our guests and Vanessa, I'll let you introduce her, but I just have to say I'm very excited for today. I'm super pumped. Today with us, we have Ellen Kelsey from the Business Group on Health. Welcome, Ellen. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me. We are so excited to have you here. I know you're moving and shaking and doing great things with so many employers on so many very, very important topics. We could probably talk for hours, but super pumped to dive right in. Maybe you can kickstart us today by talking a little bit about what you do, the Business Group on Health, and kind of what entertains you in the, in the off cycle. Well, great. Well, thanks again for having me. Um, Yes, uh, Business Group on Health is this really cool organization. We're a nonprofit association um, based in Washington, D.C., representing uh, employers and their quest to offer uh, health and well-being programs in support of their workforce and family members covered on their plans and programs. Um, As I said, we do represent first and foremost employers, predominantly self-funded employers across Every industry you can think of, of all different sizes, um, large and mid-sized organizations, and many of them operate around the world. And for them, their workforce is a tremendous asset, and they invest significantly in the health and well-being uh, programs and solutions offered to that workforce. And certainly, the past few years have really highlighted um, even more so how critically important those programs are in the support of keeping individuals healthy and happy and productive and engaged um, at work and outside of work. So we do a lot on behalf of employers in terms of representing their interests to other stakeholders, uh, whether that be industry stakeholders, such as health plans, uh, PBMs, pharma manufacturers, or legislative stakeholders on the Hill. We do a lot of advocacy work as well. Um, Another part of our membership I did want to mention are organizations like yours. Um, We have a lot of consultancies and brokers. We have a lot of um, startups and innovators. We've got the health plans, as I've mentioned. We've got providers and health systems. And we think that's really important because really, um, you know, to make progress on anything, but especially in an industry as complex and ever-changing as healthcare is, you've got to do that with multi-stakeholder perspectives coming together, having the hard conversations about what's not working, and hopefully mutually aligning on what success in the future looks like. So a big part of our membership are all the other stakeholders providing services to employers um, and by extension to the workforce. So again, just delighted to be with you today. It's my pleasure to um, share some insights and looking forward to the conversation. I've always appreciated that, Ellen, about your organization, about how you do strive to bring the, the different stakeholders that are involved in managing employer-sponsored healthcare plans across the country. Because you're exactly right, it's not just employers that can have an impact, it's not just the carriers that can have an or brokers. But as we come together, we can tackle this ongoing, changing challenge that each one of us face and each one of us are involved with on a, on a regular basis. So yeah, really appreciate that about you guys. Thank you. Yeah, we, we really believe that's critical. It's a 
you know, core component of progress um, is collaboration. And, um, you know, if all we did was get employers together, that would be great. And we'd have really, um, you know, enlightening and important conversations, but um, we'd only get so far in terms of making progress if we didn't have other perspectives and other key constituents a part of those conversations. So it's a big part of our ethos as an organization, big part of the value proposition, and, and really how we look to collaborate around sustainable change for the future. Excellent. I know you guys do a ton of great work. The The focus of our conversation today, and one that's near and dear to many, many of our mutual constituents, is how do we balance the concept of health equity, right, and in DIB initiatives and total reward strategies in this very, very competitive environment and war on talent with that of the complex nature of the conditions many are faced across our entities, right? So everything from cancer and RX spend to very high cost claim activity, balancing all of the stakeholder needs and best supporting that broad population. You know, DAIB efforts have been and have continued to put health equity center stage for many employers in recent years from unveiling kind of unique personas and needs to identifying and unveiling new access to care or navigation support. What trends are you seeing, Ellen, as it pertains to this topic of socioeconomic concern and an employer's ability to drive innovation and outcomes? I love this question. It's so important. Um, and it's it's not necessarily new, although, you know, you, you certainly cited that in the past couple of years, it seems to have gained a lot more traction, which is wonderful. It's It's mainstream. More people are talking about it. Um, but it, as I said, it's not new, new. You know, we probably had five, seven years ago in the commercial space, but certainly long before that in the public health space, a lot of focus on social determinants and different factors that influence uh, health and well being for an individual. Certainly during the pandemic, that was much more mainstream in the conversation. Uh, we saw a lot of inequities in health, health outcomes, health as, uh, access really exposed. Um, um, significantly during the pandemic. Um, certainly, there are populations within the workforce and certainly in society at large that have very unique health needs. Um, they might have unique circumstances and, and quite significant hurdles and barriers in accessing health services. And so it really did shine a very, very bright light on the inequities in health access and health outcomes and services. Um, certainly you overlay that with societal issues and, and social challenges at the time with the murder of George Floyd and other things that really just was a, you know, a much broader awakening across the country on, on many different aspects of equity and, and you said diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives more broadly. Um, so, you know, great that we're all talking about it. Lots of work had been done in the social determinants of health space. And I would say where we are now, certainly in an environment on the heels of the pandemic is a much greater focus on understanding the populations within a workforce, what the unique needs of those populations are, do they have a high chronic disease burden, for example, what solutions and programs might an employer need to have in place to address those unique needs? Are there certain populations that have a higher rate of maternal and infant mortality? Um, might certain workforces have a higher prevalence of LGBTQ plus populations? And what might their needs be when they're thinking about transgender um, coverage or hormone um, therapies? So there are certainly, you know, knowing who you have within your workforce or by extension, your broader membership, 
what prevalence of need might they have, what disparities in outcome might exist, and then how as an employer do you target solutions, work with your partners to really understand appropriate interventions um, to address those needs. Uh, you know, I think the, the working with your partner piece is, is really critical here. Um, you know, we saw certainly a lot of solutions emerge in the pandemic environment across the broad spectrum of virtual health. Certainly, we saw within that a number of solutions that focus on unique needs of certain populations. So really trying to address health inequities um, and the disparities in certain populations. I think where we are now post-pandemic is a lot of employers taking a look at that to say, we need these solutions to be integrated within our broader care continuum. Um, it would be great to implement, for example, a mental health solution that focuses on the needs of an LGBTQ plus person. But that person might be also a part of a family unit that has a youth and adolescent mental health need and another mental health need. And as you as a family are trying to navigate potentially five different solutions for the unique needs within your family, that becomes overwhelming and, and quickly craters in terms of sustainability and viability of engagement within the individual family unit, let alone writ large across you know, an entire workforce population. So we're increasingly seeing employers look to their system, uh, ecosystem partners, whether that be a navigation, concierge partner, a health plan partner, consulting partner who's advising them to say, how do we develop solutions at a macro level that are culturally competent, they're culturally concordant, that our health plan network includes diversity of providers, so I don't need to find the one-off provider that treats a certain population. So really looking for more integration and cohesion at large across the needs of, of you know, those, those unique populations. Another thing that I would say is an interesting trend right now is health equity within the backdrop of the macroeconomic environment we're in. Uh, I've heard some say, well, gosh, now employers are going to be focused back on healthcare cost, healthcare quality. They're not going to be as focused on health equity and mental health as perhaps they were during the pandemic. And if anything, we see the exact opposite. Issues of um, affordability um, are uniquely acute for underserved and under-resourced populations. So really, we're seeing, if anything, the economic environment is heightening even more so the focus on health equity um, and interventions and really working with their partners again around data to understand, uh, assess the problem, target interventions, and then measure outcomes, and to do so very thoughtfully in a macroeconomic environment where you're going to see even a worsening of some of those social determinants of health around food security, um, financial um, and income security, and, and the others as well. So lots more I could say there, but hugely important topic going to continue to be immensely important as we move through this next uh, year to 24 months of economic volatility as well. And Ellen, I would I would agree with you as we we're in a unique time, I believe, in the country. I, I mean, the data is showing that and lots of things say it. So I, that's kind of a, a silly statement of me to say that. But in that we are still in a war of talent. There's not a, a decrease of jobs out there. Employers are doing everything they can to recruit talent. But at the same time, it's the first time in our history where we've had that, but a downturn in the GDP and employers are trying to figure out how to navigate that. And I, I have really appreciated what you just stated employers are still focused on how they can take care of their employees. They're not losing sight of that, even with the threat of a downturn in our economy. And I think that that is just very forward thinking for most employers. And if you're not doing that as an employee, you need to, because what Ellen just shared 
is a crucial part of being able to recruit and retain talent and, and being thoughtful about those components is only going to help you recruit and retain that top talent, any talent, period. Yeah, I mean, it creates a culture of care and trust, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that too, because it, it's, you know, the the workforce dynamics are very different than they were even two years ago, let alone five years ago. And what employees are expecting of their employer and the culture and the environment that they come into is astronomically different. Um, and so continued focus on culture, supporting the workforce um, is integral. And, you know, we saw in our own data, survey data, and I know you all, as we were talking earlier and preparing for this conversation, you know, took a, a look at that as well. You know, employers who uh, view um, investments in health and well-being as integral to their overall workforce strategy have grown exponentially year over year. We've asked that question for five years running now, and we've seen a huge uptick in this most recent survey where a an increasingly large percentage of employers really do view these investments in health and well-being as part and parcel of a workforce and talent strategy. They're not kind of one-off, I'm just managing my benefits renewal. It is really core to how they're investing in the workforce. And they do that for cultural reasons. Um, they do that for productivity reasons. And they do that for engagement reasons. I'm going to give a plug for your surveys. Any of our Listeners who have not had the opportunity to dig into one of the business group on health surveys, they are phenomenal to just help you get an idea of what everyone else is doing out there, but also just thoughtful insights to how you may approach some things differently. And I love those surveys because they are thoughtful of how much is encompassed in a health and welfare plan and how employers need to tackle so many different components of that, whether it is the health equity conversation that we've just discussed or how to better manage high cost claims. I mean, that is something that employers and consultants, we are constantly facing new high cost claims or new things that are coming onto the market. And also things that have been around for a long time that continue to be cost drivers on a health plan. One of those cost drivers is, is cancer. And how do we best manage cancer, particularly post-COVID, as we've seen a downturn in screenings, clearly, because no one was going to the doctor. People weren't getting their annual exams. People were putting off treatments. People were putting off different things and delaying care. We've seen a, a slight uptick in, in cancer, diagnose, not, not the number of diagnoses, but percentages just because there was a downturn for a time. So I know that, that how those numbers work. But um, Ellen, be curious to see what you're seeing out there, what employers are doing to combat this with that delay of care that's happened and how they're looking to best control this overwhelming concern around cancer. Yeah, it's a it's a big topic. You know, we we survey every year in the survey you just referenced, we ask employers what is the number one condition driving your costs. And for several years running it was musculoskeletal. Um, in our most recent survey, cancer surpassed MSK, and cancer is now the number one condition fueling costs on employer-sponsored plans. And and for a number of reasons, it had been number two, so it was always you know right behind MSK. So it's not like it um, wasn't on the list all along, but it eclipsed it. And we largely think it is due to the pandemic, and as you said, you know missed screenings, um, you know entirely or delayed screenings, which then led to later stage cancer diagnoses. Um, we know that cancer is very expensive to treat to begin with. Often it is prolonged treatment. It requires inpatient stays. It requires expensive uh, pharmaceutical treatments. Um, so it's an expensive condition 
to begin with. And then the later uh, stage diagnoses generally mean more acute and severe cases requiring more costly treatments. Um, so it's just this kind of compounding snowball effect related to cancer. Um, you know, you asked a couple things um, about, you know, what are employers doing? I think some of it is just like back to the basics of reminding people to get their screenings, to go to the doctor, to get their annual mammogram, to get, you know, all the other uh, colonoscopies and preventive screenings that need to occur done. Um, it's also looking at, um, you know, emerging alternatives to treatment. Um, you know, there are some people who put off colonoscopies because let's face it, it's just not fun. <laughs> and people would avoid it <laughs> yeah. if they could, right? And there are other, um, you know, emerging alternatives um, for, you know, some um, at-home tests like Cologuard that's on the market today that some employers are starting to cover um, because it's a step in the right direction of getting an individual screening who might otherwise put off, you know, the, the colonoscopy. Um, so lots of things there that employers are doing. I know, I know we've got some, um, you know, other things to talk about there, but I'll pause just to see if you all had any reaction to that or anything else you wanted to ask, you know, specific to what I just said. Well, maybe tying the two things we've talked about so far together, you mentioned encouraging their employees to get their screenings. Now let's talk about that and how we can help employers do that and tie the health equity conversation together. Or what are you seeing employers do to help tie those two concepts together? Let's get our screenings and let's create that health equity for the, for certain underserved markets out there or certain socioeconomic demographics. Yeah, I think there are some certainly within uh, marginalized and under-resourced populations who don't have a primary care physician to begin with. Um, and so it's really understanding back to kind of the data point I made earlier when we were talking about health inequities is to understand who within your workforce has a PCP. Um, and if they don't, you know, communicating and messaging to them the value of that partnership. Or if they don't have a PCP or they're not in an area where they're able to get to one relatively easily, or maybe they work in an environment, um, a manufacturing floor where it's hard to step away to see a physician in the middle of the day for an appointment, you know, at least can they do a virtual primary care visit? You know, so really thinking about, um, you know, access to services, first and foremost, for certain marginalized um, populations or workforces for whom that might be a challenge, even rural uh, workforces, that's a challenge for. Um, so understanding, um, you know, the, the needs where there is primary care in place, where there isn't, and educating and, and trying to help folks, you know, bridge that access gap. And then it is the reminders on the preventative screenings. And some of it is, as I said, back to basics, it is just the open enrollment reminders. It's the, um, if you work with an advocacy solution or a navigation solution, you know, targeted um, messaging to individuals for whom you look in the data and they see that they've not seen a PCP in the past two to three years, or they haven't gotten their mammogram um, or, or other preventive screening done recently. So doing some targeted messaging to them along those lines. Um, there are some employers who do incentives, right, to really encourage that. So it's a premium deduction if they've done certain things that are preventative in nature. So, you know, lots of different ways that employers are really trying to um, focus on, you know, getting back to prevention. One of the things we've seen many clients do is eliminate one of those barriers to care of cost, right? How many things can we reduce costs or even make free? Let's make a virtual visit with our PCP free. Let's let's find a partner that can offer virtual visits on a fixed PEPM basis and offer that to our employees at zero cost. 
and eliminate that simple barrier to know that all my visits with this PCP is going to cost me nothing can start to establish that relationship that we know is crucial to maintain and manage health and hopefully catch things sooner rather than later. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that. That is a very important one and a barrier that many have removed. Yeah, agreed. I would say another trend that I know your publications speak to and your organization speaks to as well, it's suggested that many plan sponsors are going well above and beyond when it comes to coverage outside of traditional U.S. Preventative Service Task Force recommendations. So things like you mentioned already, that colonoscopy cancer screening alternatives, maybe that Cologuard, but you know, maybe speaking to others, right? Advanced yes. breast cancer screenings such as 3D mammograms, ultrasounds, MRIs, you know, new blood cancer pre-screening multi-cancer tests. What are you seeing and hearing there? Oh, so much. And I'm so glad you said all those because there are, you know, there's kind of the baseline minimum that, um, you know, most employers will cover. Um, but many employers have gone above and beyond that to say, you know, in, in the example of mammograms, some baseline mammograms are not catching um, and screening, um, you know, tumors. And so whether it's a 3D mammogram or other, you know, employers are thinking about, we want to catch as many of these as early as possible. And if that means we need to cover more extensive preventive tests, we will do that. And so we've seen in that example of breast cancer screenings going above and beyond the baseline to include 3D mammography, ultrasounds, MRIs. Um, we've seen others look at, you know, more advanced um, screening, um, blood screenings for for cancers. Um, you know, we've, we've seen others do, as I mentioned, you know, alternatives to traditional colonoscopies to look at um, some therapies there. So I, I, the one around, you know, the blood screenings, um, you know, I, I want to kind of maybe talk about precision medicine as relates to cancer. We have seen, and certainly in, in this field, um, a ton of innovation, uh, whether it be gene therapies, CAR T therapies. Um, we, we know that there is a lot of innovation happening in precision medicine, in particular as relates to cancer, which is phenomenal, very positive, uh, much more targeted interventions. Um, unique to the type of tumor, unique to the type of you know DNA DNA profile of the patient. Um, the challenges they're very expensive, and the innovation has happened so quickly in this field that many community providers, oncologists, don't exactly have the full command of all of this innovation. They might not be an expert on CAR T therapy, for example. And so the, the practice of a community oncologist keeping up with all of this innovation is a bit lagging. And so I think there's, you know, it's um, a good news story in that there's so much optimism and potential um, curative or, or at least um, mitigative treatments out there. The challenge is really navigating the patient to the best possible um, intervention for them is still still a bit of a challenge given some of the speed of innovation, um, which is coming fast and furious. But I think a lot of potential in that field and that will be something we'll be keeping a, a close eye on in the, in the years ahead. Right, I mean, the reality is it's dramatically changing the face of care delivery before our very eyes, right? We talk about genomic and CAR-T therapies. You know, about a third, I believe your most recent survey indicated about a third of employers currently have coverage for genomic testing and cancer treatment, while another 14% are considering this plan design option by 2025. 
right? How do you think this trend will shape the future of healthcare treatment pathways and expense, right? The the other the last piece of that is how health plans truly can afford or insure against the big dips and swells that can occur with these new innovative practices in play. I think we're still early days. And as I said, there's a lot that's coming um, fast and furious and the provider community is is lagging a bit and just in fully understanding, let alone deploying it to the right patient at the right time for the right um, you know, type of, of need and intervention. That said, I think, you know, with with each month, with each year, they are themselves getting more up to speed. There's just, I think, a groundswell of demand and need, as I said, with cancer now being the most costly condition, you've got the employer community, the largest payer um, in the United States, really demanding and expecting that their health plan provider partners have a better command of that and do a better job of targeting the interventions and do a better job of understanding the utilization to make sure that it is going um, you know, in the appropriate directions. So I think right. it's early days and it's going to get um, you know, more targeted, more refined, and more um, appropriately deployed in the years ahead. The cost question is is a big one, um, you know, and and wh- whether it's these you know immunotherapies and um, CAR T treatments for for cancer or any other precision medicine or you know multi million dollar therapy that's coming into the market, you know, I think the question is, uh, you know, from a pharmacological perspective. Um, we have a fundamental, you know, prescription drug pricing issue um, that, you know, we as an industry and as a society need to get our arms around. I mean, there's no debate that these are necessary medications and for the patient populations that need them, no employer is going to stand in the way of getting those deployed to them. Um, The challenge is, you know, the financing of it and how sustainable is that over time across, you know, umpteen numbers of therapies that will be on the market in the next, you know, five to 10 years. If we had another hour, we could spend it talking just on (laughs) pharmacy and the RX world and the changes that are coming or the changes that, that need to come, quite frankly. I think you hit on some key points there is how do we manage getting that high quality of care and the, the constant innovations that are coming and can come and manage that versus the cost of those drugs. And that's, yeah, I would love to have you back sometime and, and talk about it because that would be a conversation all into itself and something that that's I important get on yeah. my soapbox as somebody that takes a specialty medication and know the value and life-changing impact that that has. But at the same time, my consultant hat comes on all the time. And I think, man, every time I inject myself with this, I know what it's costing my employer. But it's it's tough to balance that. And it's tough for employers to balance that. And candidly, there needs to be change. But we'll save that for another day. Well, certainly, Ellen, you are full of wealth of knowledge. And there's so many fun things we could talk about. We value your time immensely in joining us today to talk about these very important topics. It's evident that employers are really focused on how do they best support not just diversity, equity, inclusion, but their people, right? That um, EQ of leadership and how do you truly morph a culture is very much embedded in all of these topics we've addressed here today. So thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, your time with us and our listeners. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you all. And it's been great chatting with you today on another episode of The Benefits Breakdown. 